Good morning. Will you please stand for the reading of God's word? Today we're in Acts chapter 14, verses 19 through 23. But Jews came from Antioch and Iconium, and having persuaded the crowds, they stoned Paul and dragged him out of the city, supposing that he was dead. But when the disciples gathered about him, he rose up and entered the city. And on the next day, he went on with Barnabas to Derbe. When they had preached the gospel to that city and had made many disciples, they returned to Lystra and to Iconium and to Antioch, strengthening the souls of the disciples, encouraging them to continue in the faith, and saying that through many tribulations we must enter the kingdom of God. And when they had appointed elders for them in every church, with prayer and fasting they committed them to the Lord in whom they had believed. This is the word of the Lord. Don't you love it when a scripture reader gets up there and there's all like the crazy names you don't know how to pronounce? Half the time I feel like I would just be guessing, which I am going to do today as well. And so and so goes on the map to this town, pronounced Mishmerdlin You know what I'm talking about. Uh, super excited for today, you guys. Uh, for those of you who are new or you're catching up or you're kind of hit, hit or missing in between where we are, we're continuing in our series called Move, focusing on how the gospel moves us towards others, really looking into the Great Commission and how that just urges, commands us to not feel content to stay where we are, but to make sure that we're looking at our lives as a place and a means to move towards others to make the gospel known. And so we're in the book of Acts, been working through Acts, and today we have a, a, an interesting look. We're going to be doing an overview of chapters 13 and 14. Yes, that's right, two chapters. Uh, but we're going to be focusing in particular on opposition. And so we're, looking ex- in, we're going to be looking into specific examples as we work through the scripture, l- seeing the different ways that people, pr- Christians experience opposition when moving towards others with the gospel. And so here is kind of like if you wanted to have the byline or the, the tagline or whatever, like hey, here it is, just, just spoiler alert, here you go. I don't see any pins, so you don't care. It's fine. Uh, the gospel requires us to move towards others, but with a loyalty to Christ that urges us to stick to the mission, even in the face of all kinds of opposition. So uh, why is it so hard to follow Jesus? You guys, I, I know you've had this question. If you haven't, let's talk about how you're following Jesus. But like, why is it hard? Like, why, why would he have us go through all these difficult circumstances, these painful moments, these just annoying oppositions, like, shouldn't it be easier? I've, I've totally thought this. I don't, I'm sure you have at some point, but this is a common, a common, common thought. And then on the other side of it, it goes like this, like, why does it seem easier for people who aren't following Jesus? Why, why, is, their, why is their life, why is it going good? Their car has way less dents than mine. Like, that's, that's just not fair. Why is it more difficult for me? Today we're looking through, like I said, Acts 13 and 14, and we want to have a really firsthand look at these different kinds of challenging oppositions that these Christians experience as they are going forth, as they are going to proclaim the gospel to both Jews and Gentiles. And so I, if you know anything about me or you've had a conversation longer than like five minutes, I've probably used the word perspective like 16 times. I know it's annoying, but I'm not going to change. So like I, I've just become a student in my life of perspective because it helps me see the bigger picture. Anytime you are reading scripture, you go before what you're reading 
to see what it's coming from. Don't read, a, don't read a verse out of context. Look at what happens. And the end of chapter 12 sets up 13 and 14 really well. And it says, As Barnabas and Saul returned from Jerusalem, when they had completed their service, bringing with them John, whose other name was Mark, after having the joy of delivering the offering to the Jerusalem church. You know, and they, they, they probably uh, have heard this, this great story of chapter 12, Barnabas and Saul returning to Antioch. They went to Jerusalem. They brought this big offering to the church at Jerusalem, and now they're coming back, and they're hearing all the things that are happening in Antioch, which is where they are. Antioch's in Syria, Jerusalem to Syria. Here we go. We'll get maps later. Don't worry about it. It's fine. It's fine. Um, but they bring back a guy named John Mark, who is Barnabas's younger cousin. Now, these great men and their young friend did not know it, but the greatest chapter in the church's history was about to unfold. The church of Antioch would receive its marching orders, and they would, of course, face these incredible oppositions as people who are moving forward and sharing the gospel. Now, uh, I know you guys have probably heard this. It's not, it's not uncommon, but you guys have heard of Murphy's Law, right? Some of you, I see some head shaking. Well done. If you haven't, don't worry. I looked it up. Uh, so one, nothing is as easy as it looks. Yes. Uh, number two, everything takes longer than you think. Correct. Uh, three, if anything can go wrong, it will. And there's my life. So, um, but I, I know you guys feel that, right? So that's Murphy's Law. Uh, so whoever you are, rich, poor, young, old, pious, impious, like you will encounter hardships. That's, that's just it. Sorry. There's no, there's no nice lovey part on there. The only time that troubles will cease is when you're in the grave. And if you're an unbeliever, actually, that's when your troubles really begin. That's funny, not funny. So let me just take this a little step further to be really clear. Life is continually difficult for a Christian. If you were sold the sob story that says, accept Jesus and everything will be fine, I'm sorry, but you were lied to. We have all met fine Christians who are going through tough times. Maybe some of you are going through tough times. Battling diseases, gut-wrenching family problems, some financial straits. Like accepting Christ is no guarantee against calamity. It's just not. I was really excited to use the word calamity. Thanks, brother. So like, no matter what your level of involvement is in Christian ministry, I'm, I'm a volunteer, I serve here, I'm a part-time, I'm on staff. I'm not, I'm a layperson. I am at home faithfully bringing the gospel to my next-door neighbors. Whatever it is, you're going to experience problems a lot more than if you just lived for yourself. If some of the great Christians in the history of the church had aimed lower, they would not have experienced such an incredible variety of sorrows, and they would not have used as mightily by God. This next part I have a love and hate relationship with. Uh, one, because I think it's overused, but two, because I think this phrasing is, is often misunderstood. But there are a lot of uh, times in the Bible, Old Testament and New Testament, where um, our faith is explained in military terms. You, you've you've refer, referred to as a soldier, or it is a battle, the, the war, these kinds of things. There's a lot of military terms that go on. And, and here's the truth. Um, there is a very real spiritual war being waged for us here and now as we wait for the return of Jesus. That is just a real fact. The good news there, we know who wins. So the outcome of the battle is not in question. We know Jesus comes back and wins because the Bible tells us so. Like We don't have to worry about the end. But in the meantime, you and I are experiencing victories and defeats in the middle of this war. 
And how we view this war, go back to perspective, makes a vast difference in our conduct, even in our longevity, just as it did with Paul, the great missionary general, and John Mark, the first missionary casualty. So let me move on. I'm going to paraphrase a lot of this so we can get into the scripture in a second. So I didn't want you to feel like shafted on the lack of scripture on this first part. But here we are. We're in the church of Antioch. It's in Syria. It is an incredibly diverse church. This church was, uh, it had Barnabas. Barnabas was a wealthy native of the island of Cyprus, a black man named Simeon. His other name was Niger, Latin for black, kind of hitting the, hell, uh, hitting the nail on the head there. Uh, another Gentile named uh, Lucius, most likely was black as well because he's from Cyrene in North Africa. Uh, also in this church was Manaean, uh, who had been raised up in King Herod's household. And then finally you have Rabbi Saul, who used to be the persecutor of the church. Like, you've got everyone from everywhere in this church. It does not look like any other church you've ever seen. So this is your church staff at Antioch, a racially integrated group of go-getters who Luke says in in verse 1 were prophets and teachers. The perfect profile for a missionary church was exhibited here in Antioch. And let me just tell you, they were a microcosm for what the church would become in the world. This was no accident Uh, but rather a very deliberate work of God. So the Holy Spirit commissions Paul and Barnabas. It says, set aside Paul and Barnabas for the work that I have for them. And they are commissioned, they're prayed over, everyone fasts, and they send them out with a little group, a little entourage, and they take John Mark with them. Now, just the spoiler and most amazing part of this is they are going to finally bring the gospel of Jesus Christ to the Gentiles. They're going to preach to the Jews as well. But this, this is when you're all Gentiles, every one of you. We are all Gentiles. Like, this is exciting because this is how we get the gospel. This is how it first happened. Um, you're not as excited as you should be. Well, it's okay. We'll work on it. Um, but here's the thing. So they, they, get, they go down the, the coast. They take a ship. They sail 90 miles to the island of Cyprus. And it's like Hawaii. Olive trees are glistening in the sun. Like, it was paradise. It was actually viewed as like a paradise island back in the day. And so they traveled 90 miles. They are preaching to Jews and Gentiles. And let me just tell you, they struck out. Like, nothing happens at all. We, we, there's nothing written on the first parts of this of where anyone came to faith. Like, I mean, can you, the, I would just be super discouraged. Even they got to uh, um, Salamis, which is like the largest city. Nothing. Like, I may, I may, maybe we should just go back. You know, things were good in Antioch. And so we know they brought John Mark to assist them. Some people view John Mark as like the first ministry intern. Huh? No? I, I like that. You guys don't like that as much. It's okay. Uh, but he came from a very well-to-do family in Jerusalem. And he had been very privy to the, the great goings and ons of the church in Jerusalem and, and all the things that were happening. And he, this is the person who would later on go on to author the Gospel of Mark. So even though John Mark is not the main character of the story right now, uh, we want to pay quite a bit of attention to him because there's much to learn from him. Um, some scholars surmise that like John Mark's problem right here is he probably came into this with like a super romanticized understanding of the gospel. Oh man, we're going on a mission trip. It's going to be, I'm going to Hawaii. I'm going to tell people about Jesus. This is going to be the best mission trip ever. Like, like it, that kind of, you guys have all been, if you've been on the mission trip, especially if you're in the youth group, it was like, this is going to be amazing. Then you're like sleeping three days with fleas and you're like, this sucks. I don't want to do this anymore, you know? But like that, that first, like super excited about what's going on, 
romanticizing the adventure. Travel around, see the sights, get to preach the gospel, like getting to see people come to the faith and planting churches that go along. That sounds fantastic. That sounds fantastic is what I was going to say. For me, this would be like if like John Piper calls me. Hey, Brandon. Hey, John. We talk all the time. Brandon, me and Paul Tripp were like thinking on going on a mission trip for six months. We thought we'd ask you to be our third. What do you say? Yes! Like I would say yes in a heartbeat. That would be amazing. Like that's people that I would like. You don't have, you can pick different people. But like that would be like the ultimate. You have Paul and Barnabas. These are like the dudes. These are the guys that you would choose. Like if you're going to send someone on a, on a mission that you want to be successful, you would send Paul and Barnabas. And they somehow scrape up this ministry intern, John Mark. And he probably got in from nepotism because, you know, Barnabas is his cousin. Anyways, that would, that, that's how this moment is happening. I know it's a little silly here, but these are, that's how big they are. We need to think of them in those terms. And so it's possible that most likely... Uh, John Mark probably thought that what he was, saw and experienced in Antioch is probably what he was going to experience elsewhere. We're going to recreate what we have here that's going amazing uh, somewhere else. And uh, it did not go well. Like I mentioned, they made 90 miles across the whole island. They're not seeing any signs of success. They get really tired, exhausted even. Accommodations were not always the best. Very soon that romance starts to disappear, replaced instead with the reality of people in a broken world and the mountain of effort it takes to reach them with the gospel. So John Mark begins to wonder why he even came on this trip in the first place. So they make their way to the legendary uh, city of, wait, I'm, I'm going to say the wrong words. This legendary trio makes their way to the capital city called Paphos. And uh, here they counter two men, and this part is just wild. If you are not reading the Bible, start with reading these two chapters. It's freaking fantastic. In fact, start in chapter 12, because then you see the death of Herod, and that's just wicked awesome. I mean... If you like fantasy movies, just, just watch that, because this one's real. Uh, but anyways, they, they get to this, this capital city of Paphos, and they meet these two guys, and this is the first massive encounter that we see, this first opposition that we see with them. They meet these two people, the Ro- Roman governor of Cyprus, his name is Sergius Paulus. Uh, Luke describes him as a very highly intelligent, indicating he was a man of great understanding, and he was evidently weary of materialism and idolatry, and he was searching for a, gen- for a more genuine spiritual reality, and that... In- that explains this next person that we meet. His name was a wizard, Elimus, a.k.a. Bar-Jesus. Bar-Jesus literally means son of, so son of Jesus or son of salvation. And Sergius Paulus has been consulting this guy for help, and he was under his sway of influence. Maybe Elimus claimed to be a spiritual descendant of Jesus and thus an heir to his magical powers. At any rate, though, this magician was claiming to know the way to salvation. Now, Check this out. Elimus is an Arabic word that means skillful one. And no doubt this guy was because he already had a controlling influence on the full ruler of Cyprus. So you can see right now this is setting up for a major battle. Paul Barnabas and John Mark, they are walking into this bare-knuckle, heart-thumping confrontation. And, And the truth is, we know this, life can get difficult, it's about to get difficult for them, but sometimes it can be even more so when you choose to follow Christ. And here's the first thing I want you to stick in your mind, that there is a cost to sincere service to Christ. Never share your faith and you'll never look like a fool. 
Never stand for righteousness on a social issue. You'll never be rejected. Never walk out of a theater or a movie or a play because it's offensive and you'll never be called a prude. Never practice consistent honesty in business and you'll never lose the trait of a not-so-honest associate. Never reach out to the needy you'll never be taken advantage of. Never give your heart, it'll never be broken. Never go to Cyprus and you will never be subjected to the dizzy, heart-convulsing confrontation with Satan. Loyalty excuse me, loyally follow Christ and you will experience a gamut of sorrows almost completely unknown to the unbeliever. But of course, you will also know the joy of a life of adventure with the Lord of the universe and of a spiritual victory as you live a life of allegiance to him. So Paul and Barnabas, they know this and for them, the battle is on. So here's what happens. I'm going to briefly do this part. They go and they meet the proconsul, Sergius Paulus, and it is like a really crazy confrontation. Paul pretty much speaks to him like he's like Satan himself, like you son of all evil. It's really crazy stuff. Makes him blind and like it's, it's a crazy moment, but he totally shuts him down. And the proconsul in that moment, Sergius Paulus, seeing that power, hearing the teaching then of Paul and Barnabas, he believes. He believes and he comes to faith. This is the first, they made all their way from, from Antioch all the way to here they are in Paphos and finally the first recorded salvation. But the realities of this missionary work, this effort, how, how hard things are, were too much for John Mark. He had inwardly romanticized the ministry that they were undertaking, but the reality had smashed his dreams and hopes. And I'm telling you, that he did not see it coming, and most of us don't either. And this is the first opposition, if you're taking notes, this is the first opposition that we're going to be talking about today, the opposition of yourself. John Mark's privileged upbringing and idealistic expectations were just simply too much for this life. He's a wonderful young man. Later we know that he would be beautifully redeemed in 2 Timothy 4.11, but at the present moment, Paul was sick of him and wanted nothing to do with him and referred to him as a deserter. John Mark did not understand the realities that his life following Jesus is a life lived out in a war. Later he would. And later Paul would say, get Mark for he is good for me in ministry. But we too sometimes draw back from a commitment that we have made. Thankfully, in those moments, God loves to give second chances. But the first opposition is looking at it like this. You are your first opposition. And maybe that sounds a little funky, but just take a second to think inwardly of all the things that come up in your thoughts, all the things that are in your inward desires that are in opposition to the gospel. And I'm just going to start by saying I'm going to throw my hat in that train of thought. Here, here are some ways that this could play out for you guys. Here's one. Uh, we wrongfully believe that we deserve the good life now. I want things to be easy for me now. Being a Christian shouldn't be harder than being an unbeliever. Or two, maybe we believe that we aren't good enough to pull it off. I don't have the right words to say to go talk to someone about Jesus. I don't have a people personality, so therefore I can't be the type of person who's going to be received well. 
I've already messed up so much. Therefore, I can't be the person that moves towards others with this gospel of perfect Jesus because I am a mess. There is an ongoing, never-ceasing war inside your thoughts, a war that is fighting for your loyalty, loyalty to Christ or loyalty to anything else. And just to be clear, the enemy doesn't care where your loyalties lies as long as they're not to Jesus. That's his goal. The battleground is much bigger than we give it credit for, and we are the first knock in opposition. There is hope, though, thankfully, in all oppositions that we find ourselves in. Life is, just as we've said multiple times, quite difficult for the Christian. If you truly and fully follow Jesus, you will open yourself to a diversity of troubles. The sad reality, though, is, and hear this part with a lot of love, a lot of love, the sad reality is many of us are too soft because we're thinking we should have the good life now. Things should be easier now. I can't do this. So we see things that are hard and difficult and we pull back from them. We cancel out or we back out. We just, we're, we're just too soft. We think that this cannot be God's will because it hurts. Or I know it's not God's will. It's too difficult. The bright reality in such a part of Paul's life, though, is that there is no trial or difficulty. Christ cannot see us through. This same Paul who writes these things writes later on that we are more than conquerors through him who loved us. With Christ, through Christ, there is room for vast optimism. So let us not go through life with these glorified expectations. The life of a believer is difficult, yes, but through Christ, you and I are more than conquerors. And that first opposition of ourself is no match when we take that to him. So let's continue on this missionary journey. Sergius Paulus just becomes the first recorded salvation in, in, in this whole thing. And so they've crossed the whole island. And we have no indication that they have seen any fruit from the journey until Paulus. And I thought you guys would appreciate this. Archaeology has found, see how, how broad that was? <laughs> Sir William Ramsey, a while back, found uh, some... Um, some, not documents, but some tablets found in Cyprus, excuse me, in Paphos that had Sergius Paulus's name on there, mentioned that he was a Christian and that his entire family became Christians. I just thought that's freaking awesome. You can think what you want, but anyways, uh, I love that we had that little bit of closure on old Sergius. So they go from there and now they set sail on a very brief, very brave, brief 137-mile you know, cruise uh, to Asia Minor. And in this part, things don't get easier. Paul gets sick. He can't even preach when they get to the first place that they get to. And here we see, though, this continued loyalty to the mission of Jesus. They've maintained Paul and Barnabas an unflinching devotion and singleness of purpose in following Christ. But the problem is John Mark's not with them. John Mark left and went back to Jerusalem. It was too much. It was too hard. It was too difficult. And so you have, as I mentioned earlier, the first casualty, missionary casualty, first person who completely backs out. And I think more of us would probably admit that we relate more with John Mark than we do with Paul and Barnabas. But Paul and Barnabas move on. 
They get to a place called City in Antioch, and they arrive at Iconium. Iconium was an ancient city that even claimed to be older than Damascus. There was no large uh, Roman garrison in Iconium, so it remained more Greek in attitude, and the culture was somewhat resistant to Roman authority. But they're governed by this assembly, uh, a citizen's assembly called the Demos, which held itself kind of far back and removed from the Roman representation. Let's read uh, Acts 14, 1 through 3. Now at Iconium, they entered together into the Jewish synagogue and spoke in such a way that a great number of both Jews and Greeks believed. But the unbelieving Jews stirred up the Gentiles and poisoned their minds against the brothers. So they remained for a long time speaking boldly for the Lord, who bore witness to the word of his grace, granting signs and wonders to be done by their hands. They show up in Iconium, and they do not bring this bland gospel like they gave it the full beans. I don't know if you've had the full beans gospel given to you. I'll write a book about it. It'll be fine. But the problem is that as great as that gospel message was, trouble immediately followed. When their enemies stirred up hatred against them, what did Paul and Barnabas do? They hate them right back. I hate those guys. Everywhere we go, we try to tell people about Jesus, and they're just rude and always get in the way. No. Did they get in a circle behind closed doors and like just speak nasty words about him? Stupid Jews. No. Can't say that, can we? No. Read what it says next. This part's fantastic, you guys. No. It says that they stayed around for a long time. In the midst of this opposition, they stayed longer. And they continued to speak the gospel boldly. They had just been ran out of city in Antioch, and they were not about to be running away again at the first sign of oppositions. And here is the second opposition that we want to look at in this missionary journey, the opposition of man. Such plunk and spunk was always been true of, of God's warriors. John Wesley uh, once encountered a village bully, uh, when their carriages, that's right, carriages met on a narrow road, the bully knew Wesley and disliked him, and he would not give him any leeway, uh, staying right in the middle of the road. And so John Wesley cheerfully went off to the side and gave him all the way, even though it made him go all the way into the ditch. And as they passed this, the bully says, I never turn out for fools. And Wesley, all five foot two of him, says, I always do. A little spunk. No, didn't appreciate the John Wesley. All right, good enough. But in 2 Corinthians, though, we have this from Paul as well, and he wrote this. Um, we are afflicted in every way, but we're not crushed. Perplexed, but not driven to despair. Persecuted, but not forsaken. Struck down, but not destroyed. Always carrying the body of the death of Jesus, so that in life of Jesus may also be manifested in our bodies. For we who live are always being given over to death for Jesus' sake, so that the life of Jesus also may be manifested in our mortal flesh. Paul's no stranger to opposition. I mean, dang, it pretty much followed him every step of the way. But this particular type of opposition is one that you and I face equally as frequent. We are afraid of how people are going to react if we talk about the gospel. Let me phrase it in a way that's going to make you dislike me more. Uh, you are afraid of how people might react if you share the gospel with them. I'm not trying to force everyone in the same box. I promise you I'm not. And if this is not your particular struggle for you, well, you're lying. Uh, but we'll talk about that later. Uh, and I'm not trying to make light of it too much because it's a challenge. 
It's really difficult. I, I know people who, when I look at them, think, gosh, the, the, nothing but the gospel spills out of your mouth, yet they will say the same thing. It's difficult. There is a death that has to happen to me in order to do that. I have to give up all of these things, be willing to sacrifice and experience all these things so that I can do this. There's always a death that has to come before it. And I've found this from baby Christians and seasoned and mature Christians alike. There's just this ongoing fear of how people respond to you, this ongoing fear of man. So here are some ways that this has played out for us. One, they can respond with anger and hate. How dare you force your beliefs on me? Don't tell me about your God. I hate every thought about a God. I don't want to hear it. Or two, they could respond with debate. I think this part scares us probably the most. Well, here are the three reasons I'm an atheist. Give me three reasons why you are a Christian. Or maybe we think their argument will be better than yours. Or maybe they'll have a bit of scripture and they'll twist it and you won't know how to defend the real truth of it even though you know it's wrong. Guys, I'm just going to tell you, I'm going to confess to you right now that there is an unhealthy fear of man that I have to put to death every day. Every day it needs to die. Every minute it needs to die. And I'm just going to be clear in saying that it will stop cold many attempts to move towards others in Jesus. From just introducing myself to begin a friendship with someone to taking steps and sharing the gospel. That fear of man has to die. But let me just share this truth about this fear of man. Allowing the fear of man to influence your decisions is not only holding your faith hostage, it's switching teams in the middle of the battle. Your allegiance to Christ is tossed out the door in trade of approval of another person instead of the perfect God who made you and redeemed you and calls you his. That is the reality of this dangerous opposition, fearing man rather than fearing God. The second that fear for God becomes, fear of man becomes more important than fear for God, guess what team we're playing for? We're playing to win the approval of man. Well, why would you share the gospel if you're wanting man's approval? You wouldn't. You'd want to make things easier and do the things that they like or that culturally is acceptable and not rock the boat. There is wonderful hope in this opposition. For those who are saved by the grace of God, you already have been given full approval by God through Christ. It's yours, it's done. When God looks at you, he sees Christ's righteousness. He sees perfect cleanliness because you belong to Christ. You've been given the free pass. He stands before you in judgment and says, no, this one's mine. Those who are rescued by Christ are forever viewed through Christ's perfect righteousness. This is why we sing, yet not I, but through Christ in me. There is no need to seek the approval from those whose approval doesn't matter. Because for the Christian, you already own it. You already have it. And it can't be taken away. His approval is way more. Way more. And it's more than enough to outweigh seeking the approval of man. Let's move on just a little bit further. 
Acts 14, 4 through 7. But the people of the city were divided. Some sided with the Jews and some with the apostles. When an attempt was made by both Gentiles and Jews um, with their rulers to mistreat them and to stone them, they learned of it and they fled to Lystra and Derbe, cities of Lycaonia. I don't know how to pronounce it. And to the surrounding country. And there they continued to preach the gospel. Their enemies are finally here in Iconium. And they've divided the demos, the citizen council, and they've decided to do what they would never have done if there was a Roman occupying thing. They decided to stone God's missionaries. But look, Paul and Barnabas were brave, but not foolish. They were born again, but not born yesterday. It's cool. You'll get there. Listen to the podcast. It'll be funny the second time. The Lord protects his children. He also wants us to use common kingdom sense. The reason I want to make a small point of this is that there should be encouragement for all of us that when we read these words, seeking out persecution for persecution's sake is a wasted effort. There's, there's nothing in that that is foolishness. There is a time to persevere through opposition when moving towards others with the gospel, and there is also a time when it's okay to move on. I think most of us lean on the we need to persevere through opposition than we do to say it's time to give up, but there is a time for that. So Paul and Barnabas, move on. Now our team has been booted out of two cities back to back, but they keep serving Christ and proclaiming his gospel. And no doubt they felt some discouragement. I know I would have. Some of the things that were said to them must have hurt. So much rejection. People wanting to stone you, people want to kill you. Like I'm, I, I hope when we hear stoning, you're thinking someone wants to kill someone. That's what that is. Yet when we read Paul's life accounts, we also find this underlying anticipation of joy. Paul was a realist, no doubt, but a kingdom optimist. So they move on another 26 miles out into the wild, a place called Lystra. And this is where the action becomes intense. And also the third example of opposition that we're going to look into. So Lystra is a super interesting city. I imagine it has kind of this old West kind of flavor and vibe. And, um, most of its people were uneducated, and they had their own language. So it was a really interesting blend of people. Um, they're recorded as being kind of half barbarous, barbarian, half barbarous. Uh, and the Romans ruled the land, the Greeks controlled the commerce, and the Jews had little if no influence whatsoever. There was no synagogue there at all. And so things start off there in Lystra with a, a cripple. Paul and Barnabas go into town. There's a man who has been, you guys read along with me, Acts 14, uh, 8 through 10. Now at Lystra, there was a man sitting who could not use his feet. He was crippled from birth and had never walked. He listened to Paul speaking, and Paul looking intently at him, seeing that he had faith to be made well, said in a loud voice, stand upright on your feet. And he sprang up, and he began walking. Now that part is pretty stinking awesome, but uh, it brought some challenges with it as well, because in Lystra, here's the story that's going on. These half-wild Lystronians, well, uh, had this ancient legend that Zeus and Hermes, Greek gods, had once come to the hill country disguised as humans, seeking lodging. Uh, they asked a thousand homes and no one would take them in. Finally, at a humble cottage, a husband and a wife brought them in and cared for them with what meager means they had. And in appreciation, the gods turned the cottage into a temple and made the husband and wife a priest and priestess. This is the story that's happening in this place. They know this. It's a part of their culture. And no one wants to be the 1,000 households that missed out on knowing that it was Zeus and Hermes. 
So the short of this part is that people saw this crippled man that they've known their whole life, saw him heal and jump up, and they're like, they're here. They thought that Barnabas was Zeus, how funny is that? And Paul was Hermes, you would probably think it'd be the other way around. Whatever, he must have looked noble or royal, or I don't know. But, um, and they even tried to make sacrifices to them as gods. You want to talk about struggles on ministry side of things? Most times we think about the opposition and, oh, you know, you're probably not going to get paid very much and people are going to think you're dumb or it's going to be a lot of these kinds of things. But what happens when people think you're so good that they make you a god? Enemies have, the enemy's just having a field day with this. <laughs> oh, man, they're going to make sacrifices to them. Talk about the temptation to sit on the throne. People are already worshiping you. Thankfully, we have Paul and Barnabas reacting the right way. They tear the robes to sign of like ultimate, ultimate frustration, ultimate disrespect, and they, they force everyone to stop, and they're like, look, count them. I got 10 digits. On, I'm just a person. We're just humans. Stop making sacrifices to us. Like they are struggling as much as they can, but remember, they speak a different language. So all the people saw was the wondrous sign, the miracle of the healing the language barrier has got to be super frustrating here. But here's what you want to look at. Uh, the people here in Lystra welcomed Paul and Barnabas with like open arms, ready to set them on the throne as gods. Which makes this next part super interesting. Acts 14, 19. But Jews came from Antioch and Iconium. Over 56 miles. Just to make that. It wasn't the walk. Having persuaded the crowds, they stoned Paul and dragged him out of the city, supposing that he was dead. Now, I'm pretty sure that like 17 seconds ago, we were just looking at these Lystrans and they were worshiping Paul and Barnabas as Zeus and Hermes, and now they're killing him. Like, how, how does that happen? Why does that happen in such a, a swift moment? The opposition to what they are doing is catching up. It's following them. It is a constant presence. And now we finally see a really difficult opposition. One of safety. Acts 14, 20, when the disciples gathered around him, he rose up and he entered the city. And on the next day, he went on with Barnabas to Derby. Paul's bad, y'all. Just, just know, dude is tough. I don't know about you guys, but when I get stoned, oh, that sounds bad too. When I go through this, you no. Know, let's move on from that example. But there's no like quick healing from that moment. Like that is a really painful, challenging moment. I mean, a, a stoning is a horrible, bloody thing as rocks smash up against Paul's body and his skull. I wonder if his mind didn't flash back to Stephen's execution, which he oversaw. Soon there he lay a blood-splattered, broken frame beneath a rubble in Lystra. And maybe this is when he experienced this ecstasy of being caught up in the third heaven that he described in 2 Corinthians and to the Galatians, he would later write, from now on, let no one cause me trouble, for I bear on my body the marks of Jesus. Galatians 6, 17. But as he lay there, the disciples stood around deciding what to do with his body. Tears streaming down their face. What do we do now? 
Then he pops open one eye and the other hops up and says, let's go. I just, I will tell you what I think. So this is not proven. I think he died. I think he was killed. And God said, no, I've got you. You don't just leave a body expecting it was dead covered in a whole bunch of rocks. Like that is a, you keep going until it's done kind of thing. Verse 20 says he rose up and he entered into the city. What incredible bravery. What an example for us to follow. That had more effect than a thousand sermons. Caked with blood and dirt, Paul must have been quite the spectacle, but nothing could deter him or Barnabas from bravely preaching Christ. And look what they continued to do. 14, 21 through 23, when they had preached the gospel to that city and had made many disciples, they returned to Lystra and to Iconium and to Antioch, strengthening the souls of the disciples, encouraging them to continue in the faith and saying that through many tribulations, we must enter the kingdom of God. When they had appointed elders for them in every church with prayer and fasting, they committed them to the Lord in whom they had believed. They went back. The place where Paul was murdered the place where people tried to murder them and kick them out of town. They went back to these places, knowing that the opposition was still waiting for them. Paul comments on this in 2 Timothy 3, 11 and 12. My persecutions and sufferings that happened to me in Antioch and Iconium and at Lystra, which persecutions I endured, yet from them all the Lord rescued me. Indeed, all who desire to live a godly life in Christ Jesus will be persecuted. Jesus said the same thing. If the world hates you, know that it has hated me before it hated you, John 15, 18. Knowing this and serving Christ anyways calls for a loyalty, trust, and faith, which can only come about through God. So this is our, our final opposition that we're going to look at uh, this morning, the opposition of safety. This one, I know no one wants to listen to this part. I know. I don't want to listen to it either. Uh, but we must. We must make sense of our following Jesus and moving ourselves to others by what the word says, not just what sounds better, easier, or safer. Safety is one of those tricky things to think about in kingdom mindset, particularly in our present day and age, because safety is a must on our list of priorities. And maybe it plays out like these, and these things sound great. I want to save school for my kids. I, I need a safe neighborhood to live in. Uh, I have to get a safe job to work out. Maybe it's a, I need a safe amount of finances just to get by on. And there are a lot of other ways that safety plays out in our lives, and I, I know that they are. Uh, but it seems to be a very clear difference in what we read in Scripture and how we think and live out safety right now. And let me just tell you, there's no loophole to sideswipe this issue. It's very plain and clear. In order to move towards others in the gospel, you have to sacrifice your expectations of safety. It will be God's good will to lead you into unsafe moments. And we don't like that. They're uncomfortable. I'm going to fail. I'm going to look stupid. 
I'm not going to get to do what I want to do. I'm going to be branded the fool forever. I'm not going to know what's going on. I could get hurt. I don't want to do it. But we shouldn't be shocked by these moments, and yet we are. And we also shouldn't try to reason our way out of them because the moments are just unsafe. You and I are promised trials and suffering for the sake of the gospel. Yet when we are faced with this opposition of safety, it tends to win out time and time again. I think it's because, and this part hurts, I think it's because we care more about what might happen to us and to those we love than we care about what Christ has done for us and what he's called us to do. And that hurts. So what do we do with these three oppositions? The opposition of yourself, the opposition of man, the opposition of, of safety. There are three of a whole bunch that we could look at, but three that we see distinctly in these two chapters in Acts as the church is moving and spreading into the Gentiles. Here's what I think. I love actionable next steps. I think there needs to be a healthy audit of how you think through the oppositions that stop you from moving towards others with the gospel. I think there needs to be a healthy audit. So here are three things. One, you need to take some time and ask God to speak into your life. You need to sit quietly knowing that he is kind and gentle and ask him to speak into your life. Ask him how that plays out in you. What are the oppositions that I face? What happens when I face those oppositions? Why am I not sharing the gospel with such and such? All hard questions. You need to ask him to make known to you the oppositions that went out over you moving towards others. We have to have an honest understanding of how we approach these oppositions. Then and only then can we clearly confess them to God first, who longs to have us bring our cares to him. So taking time and asking God to speak in your life. The second one is this. I truly believe this, that you need to invite someone else to speak into your life, another believer. You need to ask someone else a hard question about yourself and let them and the Holy Spirit that resides inside them speak to you. Spouses, this would be a wonderful opportunity to display courageous vulnerability with each other. Honey, how do you see me work through the difficulties and oppositions of moving towards other people with the gospel? Any marriage that belongs to God is not going to be moving along without God's mission if you aren't united in your loyalty to Christ in your marriage. Singles, you need to invite someone else, also a believer, to speak into your life. How do they see you experience opposition in bringing the gospel to others? Teens, you need to give your parents the opportunity to speak into how they see you interact with oppositions of sharing and bringing the gospel to others in your life. You need to give your parents that. One, it's their Christ-given role. But two, it would be really helpful to have you and your parents on the same page, working together to bring the gospel to other people. A quick note here, by the way, when you are on the side of the person who has been invited to speak in someone else's life, that is a wonderful moment of trust and bravery. And all of us should speak 
to others in that moment with humility, love, grace, and truth. Now, to all of us, the word audit sounds gross and disgusting, and we're pretty sure that IRS is like about to break down a door and like slap us with a million-dollar fine. Uh, but we all need to practice the example of Jesus' humility in taking this honest inventory. So the first one is, let God speak to you. The second one is, invite another believer to speak to you. And the third one is this, finally, you need to step out in faith and do the great work that God has already commanded you to do. If there is a fear in you in taking these next steps, then take them to God. Courage comes from the Lord. He's where our hope comes from. He is the provider of everything we need to do his work, and he is generous to give us what we need. So yes, we need to seek God and be open and honest with that. And then we need to let others speak into our lives as well. And then there's no more information gathering stage needed. It might still be scary, but the courage comes from him. And we need to step out in our faith to do the great work. As we enter into our time of prayer, um, why don't we take our time and start with that first step? Instead of moving on, instead of transitioning, whatever, maybe now would be a great time to ask God to make known to you where you stand. Father, am I moving towards others for the sake of the gospel? What are things that are oppositions for me? What things are getting in the way? What am I not doing well? Let, ask him how you might react to any oppositions that you might face so that we can start today moving forward with a healthy understanding of where we are and how we interact in bringing the gospel to other people. Would you guys pray with me where you are? Father, I thank you so much. I'm so thankful that you are a good father that you use us that you don't abandon us father when we struggle that there's not a one time only moment and if we mess up it's done but you continually use us you continually redeem us father would you speak to us now would you make it clearly known to us where we stand and bring the gospel your gospel to people. Father, we know that that is a command given to us. Help us to know the particular things that are challenges for us, the things that stand in the way, so that we might confess those to you, Father, and take steps forward in fulfilling the mission that you've given us, making disciples of all nations. We love you, Father. In Jesus' name we pray. Amen.